0: Hello and welcome back to the Educating Alfie podcast. Now, we have a really big name with us today, Dimitri Zenghelis, one of the world's most prolific experts on the economics of climate change. I'm so happy you replied to my months of emails. Now, Dimitri has worked at the highest levels of both government and academia at the UK Treasury, advising the Chancellor Gordon Brown and Prime Minister Tony Blair, and as the head of policy at the London School of Economics Grantham Institute. Dimitri currently leads the Wealth Economy Project at Cambridge University. So, the reason I really wanted to have an economist on the podcast is that financial cost is often cited as a barrier to a net-zero transition. Now, you've actually been quite critical of economists, but you are an expert on the economics of climate change and will, I hope, share your fascinating and important ideas with us today. So firstly, Dimitri, what drew you to economics?
1: Oh, well, thank you, Alfie. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've never been described as a really big name. It's it's quite a long name, but uh, a really big name is is a first. Well, I was drawn into economics. Because I was interested in the sort of policy world. I was interested in, um, you know, things like um, growth, poverty reduction, um, unemployment, tackling inequality, and all these things that felt very socially important. Um, So I worked as a macroeconomist in the first instance, spent 10 years at the Treasury. I was head of economic forecasting there for quite some time running the Treasury model. And then I started working on the Stern Review on the economics of climate change thinking this was sort of a nice, interesting aside, and then I'd return to the standard macro stuff. But of course, it's way too interesting, and I've been working on issues to do with climate change and sustainability ever since.
0: Yeah. So what about the current stuff that you're doing with the wealth economy? Could you maybe explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so on the wealth economy, we are looking at basically moving beyond GDP, beyond looking at GDP. We're not as critical of GDP as others are, because GDP is what it is. It measures measures the... You know, income, production, expenditure in the economy. That's what it does. Um, it's very clear that it's not a measure of happiness and well-being, and it's really not a measure of the stock of assets, our wealth, the stuff that generates wealth in the future. So um, the Wealth Economy Project is tasked with looking at those assets, but looking at you know all the assets that generate prosperity. That doesn't just mean the sort of buildings and factories and physical assets, infrastructure and stuff that you've got. It doesn't just mean the human capital, you know, the skills uh, that people have. It doesn't even just mean perhaps the most important part of it. Um, the ideas and the knowledge and the processes we use, the so-called intangible capital. It also means um, the natural capital that we exploit. You can generate growth by running down natural capital, um, but that's not sustainable because sooner or later your lack of natural capital, especially renewable natural capital, by the way. Renewable natural capital means things like Fish stocks, uh, biodiversity, forests, and uh, a sustainable atmosphere, because they're all prone to these thresholds after which they completely collapse irreversibly. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're really important to try and kind of nurture and also measure. And we're not really trying to do that. And of course, you know, whereas all the other assets are going up, natural capital is clearly going down. And one of the other Mm. elements of wealth that we measure as well, it's a form of intangible capital is social capital, Mm. the degree to which we, you know, trust other members of society and governments and can go out and, um, you know, interact with people, both socially and economically. And that's something that we sometimes underestimate in importance and fail to measure appropriately.
0: Mm. yeah so I guess when you're talking about putting a value on natural capital uh, who decides the value of a natural asset for example if an indigenous Maori person believes a river contains life then it's very difficult and perhaps unethical to put a price on that uh, I guess it's uh, I admire what you're doing to try and encompass these things but do you think maybe um, it, well, there's difficulties in kind of like putting a price on these things there's definitely difficulties in putting a price on these things and you can't put a price
1: on them, you know, they are beyond they have all sorts of. Uh, innate natural value that that people will, will, will differ on, um, so you can't put them, but the problem is, Alfie, that if you don't try and put some price on them, the default is to put zero and that's what the world is doing the implicit. Mm. Um, you fill the gap by just putting zero on it. And if you put zero on it, of course, you're going to overexploit it. Now, nobody's suggesting that there is a sort of, you know, pounds and dollars and cents value um, for trees and biodiversity and fish stocks. Of course, there isn't. But let's put some positive number that's reasonably high um and at least you know acknowledge that it could be even higher that's fine (laughs) because if a reasonably high price is enough to you know galvanize action to protect these things um then it's i you know i have no problem with others saying you've underestimated it we should be doing more but to do nothing and impute a price of zero is is really the road to kind of disaster and and that's the road we're on
0: yeah yeah, I guess that is totally true. Uh, and I do think that, yeah, we need to give these some sort of value because otherwise they will just get exhausted, as you say. Um, in terms of kind of the social value, I know you've talked about uh, kind of the, what value people put in a, in a model of economics on the future generations having a healthy planet to live in. So um, do you think we could value solidarity as an asset?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we should do. Um, you know, and that is exactly what social capital is about. It's difficult to measure, but that doesn't mean it's impossible to measure. I mean, we, you know, we all know that we've been through Trump and Brexit and, you know, other countries have been through all sorts of social dislocation where people feel, um, you know, they're they're not playing, they're not being uh, uh, represented effectively uh, uh, by a system they can't hold accountable, you know, whether it's left behind or inequality or whatever. Um, And that breeds a lack of trust. And it makes it much harder for governments to be effective, because if you're, citizens don't trust you, what's the point in trying to, you know, do stuff that's in their interest? Because they'll always think you're, um, you're you know, you're, you're trying to grease your own palms. Um, so you may as well grease your own palms because, you know, you're not going to get any different sort of electoral uh, response. And and that is what corrupt societies do in the end. They just sort of, you know, they pay off their own folk. And then when the next lot come in, they pay off their own folk and they're not expected to do any difference. Um, and if you go down that route, not only is there kind of a lot of, you know, social tension and social dislocation um, and sort of lack of inclusivity in the political system, uh, but you also inevitably get um, economic costs as well, because people don't feel they want to go out and transact profitably and, and so on. So, you know, you really want to avoid that. and And social capital is something that, you know, is a golden asset. And some countries have more of it than others. And you can measure these things through things like trust surveys, through um, people's um, ability to kind of go and interact socially with their neighbors, with civic groups, with you know governments um, and institutions. So that is part of the wealth economy study. it's it is trying again to put some price. We're not saying we're going to get the right price, but some price. for God's sake, let's try and value this stuff um,
0: if we're going to you know be able to manage it.. Mm. Do you think it's um, there is value in getting different histories and cultures to maybe add their value in that discussion on how much we or how we value these assets?
1: Absolutely, because you know there isn't an ex- no, there's no objective kind of benign ruler that can tell you what these things cost. They are um, they are you know functions of individual judgment. But you know you don't uh, equally you probably don't want to get too drawn into the debate of kind of what's the exact, you know, the exact price of these things? And, you know, what do you think? And what does Uncle Harry think? (laughs) You just want to get into sort of, you know, it's got to be clear and transparent and simple. And, you know, you have measures of trust, you have measures of social interaction. And you say that this country is doing better at that than that country. Now, you might think that's meaningless or irrelevant, but others will say, well, you know what, maybe the Scandies have got something right here, uh, you know, with their kind of, um, free childcare and healthcare, and higher taxes, which they all feel, in, you know, makes them feel uh, inclusive and represented by governments that are held accountable relative to, you know, other models in the world, uh, which don't. There is information there; it's meaningful. It doesn't mean that everyone has to agree exactly on, you know, the value of every single policy. That's not the purpose of the wealth economy. Um, now that might be the purpose of the political system, but what we're mm. trying to do is say, look, there are these underlying elements. Um, that are more conducive to both well-being and future prosperity, and one of them is social capital. As you say, solidarity is part of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess kind of the issue might be if when you have competing values and interests for that. So obviously, um, you, you're putting a number on these sort of like natural capital. But if there's already entrenched, you know, uh, I don't know, oil companies that are using or are chopping down trees for deforestation, um, how hard is that politically to get that message across and to change things? Uh, what's the question here? Sorry, just it's just um, how how in the real world in policy um, can we kind of like counteract the uh, I guess the power that's already and the and the actors at play in terms of using these resources.
1: Right. Well, so you you have to show how valuable they are to society, and you have to have a political system that says what you're doing is destroying a public good, and it's a public good that's you know not only important, it's existentially important. Um, but if you're sitting there not kind of putting any value at all, I mean, I don't think it's going to be very helpful to kind of get drawn into sort of esoteric philosophical questions of relativism, you know, my value versus your value and does value exist objectively. You want to go down that route, fine, but it will probably waste an awful lot of time when what you're trying to say is for Christ's sake, these trees are not just, you know, valuable, but they're certainly not zero value. Um, they ought to be fully accounted for and we need to measure them both in terms of quantity, um, through things like kind of terrestrial and airborne and satellite-based monitoring, and then bring them into the political decision-making process by putting some kind of implicit price on them. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the higher the better. Now you know um, people will disagree on the exact price, but let's get you know recognize. Let's recognize how important these assets are, and let's get going with trying to measure them. If we don't do that. Um, We're not going to make any process. And don't forget, time is not on our side. So there there is something to be said for simple mechanisms that start doing the job. Um, You know, one of the reasons we've got climate change as a problem is not because we haven't had technological or economic fixes. We've we've had these fixes for decades um, and they're not very expensive. The reason we've still got climate change as a problem is that, you know, we've wasted several decades through misinformation, through people saying that, you know, you're either got to be green or grow, um, you know,
0: and of course,
1: you don't know, think so. You, don't think, will be green.
0: So you right? don't think there's a difference between the two, or a, a decision that has to be made there.
1: Oh, there's a lot more to life than growth. But the nonsense that being green stops growth is kind of one of the most pernicious arguments that's ever been put out. Okay, uh, I mean, could you, maybe... you want to live within, if you want to live within your resource envelope, which we should be doing, uh, you know, within a finite planet, um, you will find yourself being incredibly innovative in how you use those finite resources. You will continue to use them better and better. Most growth comes from knowledge and ideas. It doesn't come from material things. That's the mistake that degrowthers make. They think growth is all about material inputs. In fact, the beauty of this is if you stop people abusing the planet and emitting um, into the atmosphere, then they become really innovative in doing things with much lower resource footprint. That's all you would expect us to do. If you froze your resource envelope tomorrow, you know full well that people will get better at better at using things. They'll substitute into new things. They'll start you know, using free resources that come from the sun and elsewhere because they have to. Are uh, we seeing that already in the growth in renewable energy, which is born of you know, um, taxes and restrictions in that you know only tiny policy effort? means that we're not going to get cheaper electricity through renewables than we would have done with fossil fuels and we're going to get higher performance, cheaper cars. <laughs> you know, we, we should have been doing that anyway, whether you give two hoots about the climate, but it took climate change um, to get us there. And there are many more examples of that. If you stopped, I mean, there's, you know, there's this sort of nonsense argument that's put out about kind of, oh, we live in a finite planet, therefore you can't have exponential growth. That's, that's utter bullshit. If you live within a finite envelope, All you would expect is exponential growth, and that exponential growth will come from ideas, from people using things better and better. You don't de-learn. You learn. You build on your ability to use resources more effectively. Problem we've had is that nobody's ever tried to constrain us to stop abusing and exploiting the Earth's resources, so we've never bothered to actually innovate to do things better, and the result is, you know, we face this massive existential risk right now. Um, and the other element is political. I mean, even if it were true <laughs> that you, you know, the only way to save the planet is to kind of degrow, and, and by the way, that's not going to go down very well in developing countries with billions of people in poverty, you know, who look at us and say, well, it's all, all very well for you to say that. Um, but even if it were true, it would be politically intractable because, you know, I mean, look at the political system. Do you think people are going to want their wages cut and, you know, their cars taken away and their, you know, know, their electricity bills um, rocketing upwards? Um, Probably not fast enough to save the planet. So actually putting this argument out slows the process down. And the tragedy is that the argument isn't even real. Don't forget, the de-growth, <laughs> argument. the degrowth argument is the argument that the fossil fuel lobby and the resource extractive industries put. They love the degrowth argument. Do they? <laughs> there was a headline in the newspaper the other day, Not Now, Greta. What was that argument? It was a degrowth argument. I think it was in the Telegraph. And it's basically saying, look, you know, we've just come out of recession, we've come out of COVID, you know, give us a break. Let's focus on jobs and growth for a little bit before we have the luxury of saving the planet. It's based on the bullshit degrowth argument. Um, they love it. You know, the extractive industries and the, and the kind of liberal uh, capitalist right love the degrowth argument because it's what stops us taking action to save the
0: planet. Unfortunately for us and for future generations, it's a disaster. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So you think there can still be <laughs> an extractive economy um, that is in a way kind of regenerative because of the way in which we are in it, like ingenious and we can innovate in our ideas, essentially.
1: No, we, we can't have the extractive economy. No, we have to live within our ecological footprint. But I'm saying that doing hmm. that is a wonderfully, um, you know, it will generate a huge, the, the innovation works, so look, I'm not saying, let's be really clear. What I'm not saying is, oh, don't worry, innovation and technology will solve this. That will not happen. We will go to hell in a handbasket. That's where we're going. Um, what I am saying is force people to live within their ecological footprints And what you won't find happening is suddenly everybody kind of has to live in a bivouac and and eat beans out of a can. What you'll find is we'll do incredibly clever things about generating energy for free, about using resources way more efficiently, way more innovatively, way more productively. Um, You know, we'll change behavior, too. You might decide you don't want four cars and 15 watches and you'd rather go and have more time with your family and more time, you know, stuff that is within the measure of GDP, stuff that's not within the measure of GDP. But it does not mean that you have to sacrifice well-being or even narrow GDP in order to save the planet. Um, Of course, we're going to have to change some behaviours. And of course, some sectors will be expensive. But that's more than offset by the gains you have through the innovation and using your resources more effectively. And look, we've seen that already in, in renewable energy and in cars, like 10 years ago, everyone would have told you they're wateringly uh, uh, expensive. Now everyone goes, yeah, yeah, well, so yeah, of course, you know, cars and electricity, but what about aeroplanes? Wait a minute, cars and electricity? We lit that within a decade. Are you kidding me? That's These are not trivial sectors when it comes to carbon emissions. Let's Let's keep going, see what happens with aviation. Of course, some of it is going to be expensive. Some of it's going to evolve lifestyle changes. But I would Mm. much, much, much prefer to live in a world that's cleaner, quieter, more secure, and environmentally friendly, and also more efficient, innovative, and productive than carry on using the sort of, you know, smokestack technologies of the 19th and 20th century.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, okay, so what are the the policy changes that can... Uh, enact this, these changes that you're talking about. Um, and specifically, I'm interested in terms of like the behaviour changes that you mentioned as well. So we need to get going. We don't have time. We really don't have time. Every year that we delay,
1: we put more of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The stock goes up um, and we lock into infrastructure, you know, physical, human and other resources that are high carbon that we're then sort of stuck with for decades. So the f- most important thing is urgency. Stop wasting time. We've wasted decades on this. And every, you know, every year, every month, every week, we delay, it gets harder and more expensive to do something about it. And we open ourselves up to some of these big, irreversible, potentially catastrophic risks. This is urgent. This is where you need to kind of, you know, thump your fists on the table. Let's get going. And we need ambitious policy to do that. Uh, What kind of policy? It's going to be a mix. There's got to be some pricing of stuff, especially carbon. That's not Mm -hmm. going to do it on its own. Um, You're going to need standards and regulations. Literally, you just got to stop doing X and Y. Uh, you won't be able to buy X and Y. Um, if it's resource extensive and carbon emitting, it's off the menu uh, and that forces change. And you've got to, you know, on the positive side, subsidise and s- support R&D and uh, deployment as well. So those are the three kind of big things. You also need institutional change. You need things like infrastructure investment banks with very strong uh, sustainability mandates. There should be no public money going into anything that locks into fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, You know, there are issues of devolution, of allowing kind of local communities to resolve some of their environmental um, uh, and, and social problems in the way that they feel, you know, fits their local community rather than have it sort of in the UK case being dictated from Whitehall. So there's all sorts of institutional changes that need to take place as well. And the behavioral side of it um, then makes sense because you've got the policy framework and also businesses who now want to make a profit out of the new sectors who fear that they're going to be sitting on all sorts of devalued and stranded assets in old sectors, so they start selling them. So you enter a doom spiral for the fossil fuel industry, but a growth spiral for these clean technologies, um, working together with, with civil society that says, you know what, maybe we want to change our behavior and do things differently. So right now, if you don't have the policies, Say, you know, Alpha, you look like a, you know, a well-meaning young person who kind of wants to do the right thing. So you mm. decide you're not going to fly and you decide that you're not going to have a car and you'll take your kids, if you have kids, to school in the rain by walking. Great. What happens there? Your neighbour gets more parking space. Your neighbour doesn't give a shit about the climate. So he or she... More likely he, literally as a demographic, older males tend to be more skeptical about these things. And <laughs> uh, decide, well, my neighbor's freed up a parking space and you know, he doesn't drive, so there's more room on the roads. I'll buy two cars. And um, flight prices have gone down because these do-gooder, uh, you know, liberal woke types aren't flying. So I'm going to take two holidays. Um I mean, literally, you know that reaction, if people work on their own, I mean, it's lovely and it's wonderful. Mm. but without a concerted policy effort, it won't it won't deliver. and let's be realistic when you then go to the pub and talk to your neighbor and start telling your neighbor how virtuous you are in doing the right thing and and you know saving the planet and how they should be virtuous too, what effect's that going to have? Are they going to go, you're absolutely right, or are they going to go, screw you, I'm going to go and sort of, you know, burn some diesel in my garden just to get my own? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible, but that is the society we live in. You know, having people kind of preach to others and telling them they're holier than thou does not deliver change. And talking about the need for sacrifice usually kind of breeds free ride, I mean, even at the globe. So one okay, one of the big things that happened at the global level, which changed, um Changed the narrative in a sense and made the Paris Agreement much more successful than the Copenhagen Agreement, um, you know, eight years before it was you moved the narrative from burden sharing. We've all got to roll our sleeves up, and a big sort of degrowth argument, we've all got to kind of roll our sleeves up and and uh, compromise growth for the sake of the environment, um, to one of opportunity and self-interest, which said actually decarbonizing is in your own self-interest. You can solve particulate pollution in your cities. You can have more efficient infrastructure. You can fabricate and export this kit, um, you know, solar panels and make money out mm. of it. Um, you can you can tax things you don't want and so on and so forth. The burden sharing argument just meant that there was a race to the bottom because everybody says, well, I'm not going to compromise my you know, people's well-being. for you. I'll wait for you to go first. So everybody free rode on everyone else and nothing happens. I genuinely think the only way we're going to unlock this coordination problem and breed collaboration to solve climate change is to point to um, some of the benefits and opportunities that are involved. That doesn't mean, you know, you can carry on using materials, quite the reverse. We will have to live within our ecological mm. footprint and there will be transition costs. And some people, often very vulnerable and poor people, people who work in the coal industry, for example, will suffer. Mm. And it's all very well for us urban types to kind of say, yeah, we need to do this. You have to be aware that there are people who have not been doing very well, who are going to do even worse as a result of this change. And if you don't make that transition, there's a movement called the Just Transition to either compensate or retool and reskill these people to be able to participate in the opportunities of the new economy. You're not going to make progress and you will be acting in a way that, frankly,
0: is is also morally um, very questionable. Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. But I'd just like to take you back slightly to the just the growth thing, just because like, I still struggle just to slightly get my head around it. Um, I think if we're going to continue into this sort of like green growth, then perhaps that you've talked about path dependency, you know, building on what's been before. Does that not build on ideas of or cultures of consumption and capitalism that is about extracting as much material as possible? Um, It will just be something else rather than oil. So you've wrapped up about five questions in one there. Um, Let me try and break that down a little bit.
1: Uh, First of all, most growth uh, currently comes from growth in ideas. It's called total factor productivity. In other words, it's not just throwing more cement and steel and resources into the equation and getting growth. It's actually getting more out of the resources you have. So that's good. yeah and you know and it's why growth and resource use is beginning to slow down it's called relative decoupling now relative decoupling is not good enough we need absolute decoupling we have to absolutely use fewer resources and absolutely reduce our emissions to zero okay that that does it is not the same thing as growth material resource use and growth are two different things so what i'm arguing is that you can continue to have growth without And indeed, I think you're going to get potentially more growth because you're going to spur innovation and efficiency without um, increasing resource use, indeed with reducing resource use. Now, what does that mean for behavior? I think it's also going to have beneficial effects on behavior because if, you know, the the resource use options are more expensive, people will start um, using less of them. And they'll start, you know, maybe not having a car and having a bicycle that integrates with public transport. And they may well enjoy that. And if they enjoy that, that <laughs> could be picked up in GDP. It might not be picked up in GDP. Spending more time with your family won't come up in GDP. Mm. So GDP is not good enough. But even GDP could do okay in an environment where um and jobs and, and wages, which are linked to GDP, could do okay in an environment where you spur innovation to save the planet. Now, you know, mm. whether it's, you know, if, if your beef here is saving the planet, that's the way to go. If your beef here is the capitalist system, fine you can you can fight a different war i'll, I'll be <laughs> honest with you the soviet system was not brilliant at, at and and you know a lot of systems which are <laughs> have not been fanta- fantastic stewards of the environment hmm. um so i don't know what you know what battles and what ideologies people want to kind of you know uh, champion but my concern here is living sustainably uh, securing hmm. um natural capital and the environment and securing people's lives and well beings in a way that's inclusive and
0: uh, equitable. I, I, if that's your agenda,
1: it's very clear that degrowth is not the way to go.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I I do definitely see what you're saying, and I think that like having you know worked in the NHS and seeing like the the care industry and, um, kind of, I think if we could value care more and there's obviously in the kind of, uh, some of the Northern European countries, the way they thinking about a four day working week and these kind of like policies actually can improve welfare and GDP at the same time, which I guess is a win-win. Um, and yeah, I think potentially there is, yeah, some hope there. Um, yeah. I'm not,
1: I'm not comfortable with the way society is going and I'm not comfortable with, I mean, by the way, um, I should say this. The market's going to deliver a big part of the change, and private financial capital is going to play an important role. Mm. But absolutely none of this will happen without the public sector. It's the public sector that's going to drive the change. All these policies I've talked about, and also uh, public investment and procurement, are going to be the thing that tip um, the rest of the economy. And they're the thing that's going to drive innovation don't you know don't be fooled into sort of being told that the market's going to innovate anything to help save the planet without the government pushing it to do so mm. um so this requires public intervention it's why unfortunately the right tends to be one of the reasons why the right tends to be very kind of skeptical about doing um you know uh, taking the appropriate action because they seem, seem to be fearful of the fact that it's kind of going to require more government well it will Um, You know, the way to placate the right there is to say, well, all right, but then you need to do it in a way which is transparent and clear and safeguards consumer interests and all the rest of it. Now, you raised a slightly different question before about the morality of greater consumption, which I think, you know, lots of people sort of um, have their views on. Personally, I totally agree that, you know, I will occasionally fly, but I have a bicycle. I live in a city. I use public transport. I've never owned a car and all the rest of it. I'm very happy that way. Um, I want to spend more time with my family, I think kind of the rat race of consumer society is not good for well being, it's not good for mental and physical health. There's all sorts of things we can do to change society and make society a better place that falls outside GDP. But but what really kind of irritates me is when that argument is then conflated into a totally separate one that says, therefore, um, doing things better has to mean that everybody's going to have lower wages, and there'll be fewer jobs, because you know, you need that. It's almost a sort of puritanical flagellation we've all got a kind of you know you've got to whip ourselves and that's the only way to live virtuously well that may or may not be true but it's it's not brilliant politics if that's the way you want to go to save the planet because you're not going to make much headway and I happen to think it's not true as I say we've seen in renewables we've seen in cars the wonderful things that can come out of just a minimal amount of effort to decarbonize and and you know utilize fewer resources there's much further we can go we're not going to be able to do all of it through innovation, even with the best intention and the best policies in the world. But let's get started in doing the stuff we can and then, you know, start telling people that they've got to change their lifestyles. Most of the areas where people have got to change their lifestyles. Actually, there, there is a fix. You know, we can't carry on eating meat the way we are, but there'll be laboratory meat. Um, you'll eventually price out meat or, or just ban it. Um, but you'll be able to eat just as tasty stuff that's done in a very sustainable way, or that you know either comes from sort of you know, or, or or understand the wonders of vegetarian cooking. But the point what you don't want to do is start telling everybody now that you know you can't have cheaper electricity or better cars until you start becoming a vegetarian, a vegan because it 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 slows everything down. And I can't say this enough. I can't emphasize this enough. We don't have time to fuck about on this. You know, we've got to get moving. So, you know, let's not muddy the waters and let's not give the extractive industries, the oil companies and the far right, or the far right, the kind of neoliberal right, the excuse they want to stop pushing for climate action. And that excuse is it degrowth, basically. That excuse is, oh, well, yeah, you can do this, but it's going to mean everybody's going to have their wages and jobs cut, which, of course, stops any progress. That's that's where we're at. That's, that's the kind of crap we've had to put up with for 20 years. Let's get over it and move on.
0: OK, so you think that... Actually, we need to put money, financial investment, public investment that can make this change.
1: Absolutely. Um, We need to borrow to invest. The returns to this are enormous. And we need to have the policies and in the institutions that that also um, induce that kind of change. Change in innovation, change in behaviours, change in institutions. Look, change, this is all about change and people fear change. Um, So giving them a kind of, you know, the weapon to push back by saying, you know, this change is going to be really, really costly. Um, is a a self-inflicted own goal. And we just don't have time to inflict own goals here. I'm really sorry. Mm. Um, We've just got to move forward. We've just got to innovate. We've got to start with all these wonderful opportunities we have and at the same time tackle the stuff that's harder to get. And we've got to start doing it now. And we've got to all pull pull together uh, and work with the public sector to do that. And, And pulling together means not scaring everybody with stories which actually may or may not be true.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think the, the truth of climate change is scary enough, to be honest. Uh, well, a yeah, g- I mean, it's not, it isn't scary enough mm-hmm. because people have
1: cognitive dissonance. Some people me the other day, there's a book, I haven't read it. I'll give it a plug, even though I haven't read it because they're, they're, they're a responsible kind of, and it's caused by a Norwegian author and it's called something about what you're thinking about when you're not thinking about climate change. Uh, um, you know, that's the broader issue. You can live with all the kind of social injustice across the world and somehow you sleep at night because otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be able to function. Um, so don't I think I think the the fear story about climate change is really important because it bloody well is scary. Mm. Um, but you can't rely on that to force change. it just won't do the job. Okay. Yeah. We shouldn't so, ignore it by the way. We shouldn't mask it. We shouldn't pretend it's not there. That's not going to help either, but we shouldn't rely on it solely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, that's very insightful. I'm aware that I've probably got over your half an hour of slot of time uh, and you're a busy man. Um,
1: That's great no it's been really I've really enjoyed it
0: no it's it's interesting definitely to hear your perspective uh, and I do think that um, urgent practical change is needed on the problem um, perhaps you could just end it with a little note on optimism just because I heard something you said um, for a previous podcast that I really enjoyed uh, in terms of how we can be optimistic for the future
1: well, I, you know, be careful. I'm, I've often given this talk and I've sort of said, look, you know, we've had this amazing sort of revolution in renewables and in cars, and this is just a beginning we can do. And, and people at the end say, God, I wish I shared your optimism. And, and actually, um, if that's the if that's the impression I've left, then I've not done a great job because it's only a sort of partial impression. There's there's a great blog by Paul Roman, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, uh, where he talks about conditional optimism. And that's what I am. I'm conditionally optimistic, which means if we start doing the the right things and making the right choices and investing in the right areas, which, by the way, we're not. (laughs) That's why it's not as optimistic as it sounds. If we did that, we could really have this licked quite quickly in a way that not only do we not feel generally too much pain, we actually end up living in a much better world. Better world, irrespective of climate change, whether that's because, you know, we spend more time with families or because we have amazing, uh, efficient, uh, innovative um, infrastructure, you know, doesn't matter. But it won't be a worse world. It will be a better world. Um, So that's the optimism. Mm. The reason it's conditional is that that just won't drop out of heaven. Science isn't going to solve this. Innovators aren't going to solve this unless they're pushed to. And so Paul Romer talks about complacent optimism as being the feeling a child gets when they sort of sit there and wait for presents. Uh, conditional optimism is a feeling a child get, you know, when they say, "Okay, um, I'd like to build a treehouse. Why don't we get some wood and some nails and get a couple of kids from the neighborhood and start, sort of, you know, maybe having fun and see what we end up with? Because you end up with something that's better. These things become self-fulfilling prophecies, and it's th- it's that way with climate change. We can solve this if we want to, and if we do want to. Um, we can do so relatively costlessly and, and end up with a better world. It require a bit of investment up front. There's no doubt. You know what? What strategic investment and doesn't require a bit of capital up front, um, but the results will be fantastic. Whereas if you sit here and wait for it to happen, or worse still, start to muddy the waters by talking about it's you know, oh climate change isn't real. But if it is real, it's going to be so expensive, and you know, oh, and why should we do it if the Chinese aren't there, You. you end up wasting years and you deliver zilch uh, and then and then we're doomed so it's a conditional optimism all i'm saying is we can solve that i mean it's almost tragic because we can solve climate change quite easily and yes. what are we doing not solving it no so maybe yeah. that's maybe that's not the injection of optimism you were looking
0: for. <laughs> not quite no not quite um yeah and i do i see these problems and also the solutions in terms of like the wealth inequality as well and the amount of money in the system like this should be enough to change these inequalities but it's just not happening um mm. I guess you sit on some quite big tables I hope that people are starting to to move on these things and to, to listen really
1: well I you know I hope so I can you know all we can do is keep banging the drum and telling the story and trying to do it in as clear and and, and powerful ways as, as we can mm. um but part, part
0: of that is sharing things on a on a podcast like this to the world absolutely, so. <laughs> absolutely very
1: pleased and you know please do send me the link um i want to hear the other as well i didn't i had a look and i didn't find it but i'm not sure i was looking in the right place actually so i should have should have asked you that beforehand wow yes and good on 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 you. but well, also good on you for doing this and, and pushing this and getting people to talk and, and highlighting the, the topic and you know, asking, you've asked all the right questions, actually, I've really enjoyed this discussion. It's up until, you've really gone back to the kind of key questions that sometimes people sort of um, sidestep. And these are the questions, the ones you're asking, I think, that, that, that you know, people care about and that people talk about
0: yeah yeah i guess it's just trying to mainstream any sort of thinking that's going to be able to get us forward so yeah really appreciate your insight today dimitri really, really uh, yeah healthy. thank you for sharing your time um thank yeah pleasure lot. to meet you
1: do we do i sign off or do we just stop recording
0: um we can uh, we can just stop recording I, I edit off the ember anyway so it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. <laughs> but before
1: i say goodbye please do send me the link so i can hear the other podcasts that we, be i mean, i meant to have done this but it's just been you know too too busy and i did sort of briefly look look up now you might have sent it already but if you can send it again that'd be superb i certainly will yeah i hope you enjoy it Great. i've really genuinely enjoyed it and thank oh. you for you know you've asked brilliant questions so um i hope you know i hope it gets your well your series of podcasts get the traction they deserve
0: ah oh, well thank you dimitri and yeah hopefully we can yeah. stay in touch as well let's do that cheers Alpha. okay thank you very much yeah. bye now see bye. you
1: bye bye <laughs>